the, the topic is, you know, how to give big gospel yeah. answers to ethical issues. And we include in this will be a short case study on how to engage with Black Lives Matter. I've mentioned to a couple of people that I'm speaking on Black Lives Matter and they've all drawn breath and uh, said you're a brave man, which is a way of saying you're a fool. Uh, George Bernard Shaw wrote a, a play many years ago called Arms and the Man. And then he said, there's not much difference between a brave man and a fool. He also said the man who leads the cavalry charge is the man who's lost control of his horse. So I'm talking on a subject for you to be patient with me. Be kind, be gentle uh, as we listen through together on these issues. I've got a few uh, headings I'll give you for those takers amongst them. The ethical moral lifestyle issues are what people talk about and what people make judgments over, uh, personal choices they've got in their lives or criticisms of other people. It's also where people make the false move from what is to what ought. For what is, is. It tells you nothing about what you ought to do. But they use the language of ought, should, must, you're obliged to, you're required to. They use the language of right and wrong, evil and wicked even. Uh, it's not just, it's not fair. All the language that actually comes out of Christianity or Judeo-Christian thinking. But they don't know that. And we've got to help them understand it. Because on these social issues is where the gospel actually hits the road. And so it's a great entry point into gospel conversations. Uh, they're talking about the football. You've got to work hard to get there to the gospel. But when they're talking about the rights and wrongs of lockdowns or of people crossing borders or of... Now you're talking about issues of morality and that's the entry point in. So the first heading I've got is a crash course on biblical ethics. And I thought I'd read you the Bible somewhere along the line. So this is a good place in which to do it. If you're turning your Bibles to Proverbs chapter eight, Proverbs chapter eight, because it's all about wisdom, wisdom to live by, wisdom in creation itself and wisdom with results. Let me read the whole chapter for you here. Proverbs chapter 8. On your device or on your Bible. Does not wisdom call, does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of men. O oh, simple ones, learn prudence. O oh, fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands, and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil, and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, 
kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule and nobles all govern justly. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honour are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields on the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master worker, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways, hear instructions and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favour from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Uh, it's an extraordinary passage and one that well worth the evening just spending studying that. And in some ways, if we spend an evening studying that, we'd be doing better than listening to the talk I'm about to give you. Because there's not much Bible in the talk I'm going to give you and there's a lot that's in that part of the Bible. But you'll notice that wisdom is something to live by. Notice that wisdom is built into the very into the very creation of the world. The world was made in and by wisdom, through wisdom. Wisdom was part and parcel of our very creation. And note, wisdom has results. If you live by wisdom, you make fortune, you rule the world, you're a king. But if you don't have wisdom, you'll have folly and stupidity and disaster. This is a way of understanding the biblical view on ethics. It's not so much rules and regulations, it's relationship with God, which is found to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, but in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so it's to live by the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, for whom, by whom the world was created. Now, the difference in our biblical ethics from non-Christian ethics is much more a difference between normative ethics and meta-ethics. Normative ethics is just the ethics of norms, uh, e.g. Uh, adultery is wrong. Meta-ethics is the basis of those normative ethics. What is right and what is wrong and why is it right and why is it wrong and how do we know what is right and what is wrong. 
Most people do not think on meta-ethics, they just think on normative ethics. That politician shouldn't have done that, this one shouldn't have said that, and so on. But meta-ethics is much more important for Christians to understand. You see, there are three bases of normative ethics, three aspects of meta-ethics that will explain normative ethics to you. First one is declarative. It's what the creator, the redeemer, the God and Lord of this world says, because he declares what is right, because he has made the world, it's his world, and he's made it for his purposes. And so he has the right to declare what is right, and he declares what is right in accordance with the world that he's made and the purposes for which he's made it. And so the Ten Commandments are a classic case of God declaring what is right, honor your father and mother, what is wrong, you shall not steal. The second basis of our ethics, though, the second meta-ethic is intuitive. It's what seems right to me. It, it's, it's just an intuition. I, I haven't got any particular argument for it, but it just is what seems right. God says in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 10, judge for yourself. Does not nature teach you this? There's something about humans created in the image of God that gives us a sense of conscience, a sense of knowing what is right and what is wrong. We suppress this truth, but we have this truth. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11 says, God puts eternity into the hearts of men so that we know there is a time for this and a time for that. You know that little poem, a time to kill, a time to, to love, a time to hate, a time to build. How do we know there's a time for things? It's an intuitive knowledge because we were created not like the animals. We were created in the image of God with that sense of eternity in our hearts. And there's a third way of third meta-ethic of understanding normative ethics. That is pragmatism, utilitarianism, if you want to use that language. It's what works. If you lie around doing nothing all day, you'll starve. If you work hard, you'll have enough to live on and to give to others. The world works. Now, the reason the world works is because God has created it to be inhabited by us. You find that, for example, in Isaiah 45, 18, but you find it here in this Proverbs chapter 8. The world works because God created it by his wisdom in order to work. And so you can point to things and say, look, if you keep stealing, you're going to wind up in jail. It's a, a pragmatic argument. You're not saying stealing's right or that it's wrong. You're just saying it leads to jail. Or oh, there are other things. You keep using drugs wrongly like that, you'll get yourself addicted. You'll kill yourself sometime. There's a pragmatic argument. So there's three kinds of levels of arguments. What God says, how we feel about something, and what works. So with those three backgrounds, let's enter into the second topic I want to talk about. That is ethical debate. When we're debating with our non-Christian friends or even with our fellow Christian friends, we jump between these three levels of argument. The declarative one, 
is absolute. It's right or it's wrong. You must not bear false witness. It's, it's a matter of right and wrong. It's never right to bear false witness. It's a, a right, wrong issue. And this should be required of you. This is what you ought to do. This is what you ought not to do. But it doesn't work in debate unless the other person accepts God and his word. So the person who says, well, I don't believe in God, so I don't care what God says or what your God says because I don't believe in God. Well, then you don't get very far in that kind of argument. Mind you, amongst Christian friends who do believe in the word of God, we get a long way with that kind of argument. And I want to say there are many more people accept God and his word than you may expect. There's a lot of people who will tell you that they're atheists because they don't want you to crimp on their, their lifestyle. But actually, many, many more people, when you say, how about we pray about this? Say, yes, please do. And when you actually say, well, look, God's against that. They say, oh, is he? Rather than, oh, I don't believe in God. But the second level is intuitive. Now, the trouble with the debate on the intuition is that there is no agreement about logic or reason by which you can argue because it's intuitive. And furthermore, this kind of intuition that people have, because of human sinfulness, because of human cultures and fashions and education, our intuitions are distorted. Our thinking is in disagreement. You take an extreme case. Of, of cannibalism. There are some people who feel it's perfectly all right to eat other humans. There are other people who think, no, that's not right, but it's perfectly all right to eat animals. There are other people who think, no, it's not even right to eat animals. The intuitive level of this feeling of it's not right is very powerful, but you can't really argue with it because it's just how people feel about something. Yet, this is the motivating force for most moral arguments today. This is what gets people to take action. That's why images shown on television are so powerful. That's why the animal rights people will want to show you images of, of animals being abused, because that motivates people intuitively. It's not a matter of reasoning, it's a matter of motivating intuitively. It's why the anti-abortion people are very keen to show pictures of, of, of fetal life, whereas the pro-abortion people are very, they will not have us show any pictures of fetal life because showing that may move people at this intuitive level. And when people are moved at the intuitive level, they take action but you can't debate it much. Now, the third level, pragmatic, that's the easiest to debate. That's the easiest to reason over. I mean, everybody agrees that a bad outcome is a bad thing to do and a good outcome would be a good thing to do. And so, but trouble, while we can argue about it and say, well, look, if you do this, these will be the consequences of do that, these will be the consequences. While we can argue about it, the arguments never actually work because we don't know the consequences of our behavior. 
in the 60s, 1960s, which I can remember, but most of you can't, there was great discussion about censorship and getting rid of censorship, especially getting rid of all political censorship. Because what it really created was widespread pornography. Now, that was not the consequence we were looking for necessarily. Some people were, of course, but that was the consequence that came. While political censorship, unfortunately, still continues. It's very hard to see the outcome and to see what time frame by which to judge. So in the 1970s, with a, all kinds of terrible confusion about um, divorce laws, the, uh, the Attorney General of the day brought in a whole new definition of marriage by redefining divorce. He, he defined divorce in terms of a 12-month separation, no fault. No longer did you have to prove adultery or prove mental cruelty. No longer did you have a long five-year wait. At the end of 12 months, without any reason at all, you could divorce. That changed the nature of marriage. For when I was married, I was married for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, until death us do part. But now, actually, what my marriage means is I will stay with you and I won't go to anybody else in the same marriage contract as this marriage contract until I've left you for 12 months. The new divorce law redefined the marriage law, which meant 30 years later, marriage itself was undermined. By the end of the century, the percentage of people getting married had seriously reduced because marriage was no longer of the quality that it used to be beforehand. So by the end of the century, instead of 5% of our children being born out of wedlock, 35% were born out of wedlock. Immediately, no change. But over a generation, huge change. Furthermore, with these pragmatic discussions, the argument itself changes the outcome. I'm sorry if you're one, but I always laugh at the economists. Because <laughs> each year they make predictions about what's going to happen. And each year when you check back later, they're wrong. Quite often 19 out of 20 are wrong. But then again, by making the predictions, the audience acts differently than how they would have acted. And so their prediction might have been right if they'd kept it to themselves. But by speaking, the very activity of speaking, the very it changed the outcome. Furthermore, with the pragmatics, we never know what the desirable outcome is. Maximization of happiness. Why? Why is happiness the thing that matters most? And is the well-controlled drug addicts the happiest of people? And is that the maximization of happiness? And should it be the maximization of the greatest number of people being happy? How do you judge how happy happy is? What if one group is supremely happy and another group not quite so happy? Is that better than having everybody not so happy? What if torturing one person makes everybody happy? Would that be, how, how do you judge these things? So although pragmatic discussions are the most reasonable discussions, they're not actually ever resolvable. Now, the third topic I want to raise for you is an atheist understands all this. 
There's a man, Professor Jesse Prince, P-R-I-N-Z, from City University of New York, famous atheist, well-written and well-respected atheist of philosophy and psychology. And he writes saying, objective morality. Ah, that's a normative morality, which is said, this is right, this is wrong, and it is right or wrong, irrespective of consequences. What's right's right, what's wrong's wrong. Objective morality, he says, requires three things. One, a benevolent God. Yeah, yeah, he's an atheist, but that's his, it requires that. Two, it requires a human nature of innate set of moral values. And three, it requires rational principles like logic or arithmetic. Hey, he's just saying what I've been saying for the last few minutes. I agree with him completely. I don't often agree with atheists completely, but he is absolutely right. If you want to have morality, that's the three levels, and you need all three, really. But of course, being an atheist, he doesn't have a benevolent God, and he hasn't got humans created in God's image, so he hasn't got any sense of innate morality, and he has no rational principles for morality either. Oh, Philip, that sounds a bit rude, doesn't it? No, no, he hasn't. He hasn't got any rational principles for morality. Well, then, where does his morality come from? Where does morality come from? Well, what is the meaning of moral reasoning? Here is a quote from him, and I quote word for word. No amount of reasoning can engender a moral value, because all values are, at bottom, emotional attitudes. The judgment that something is morally wrong is an emotional response. You see, he does not have rational principles for morality. For morality is for him nothing more than your emotional response. You see adultery and you say, that's wrong. That's because in your emotional make-back framework, wherever it's come from, you feel it's wrong. That's all there is. I'm just expressing my feeling that I don't like adultery. But adultery is not wrong. It's not right. It's not wrong. There is no such thing as right and wrong. There just is emotional reactions to things. Consequently, when we're talking with atheist-influenced people, there are not many atheists around, but they influence a lot of people. When we're talking, we are often talking two different languages. That is, my fourth heading, we're talking at cross-purposes. For the difference with Christian and non-Christian is not so much a difference about normative ethics, the norms of good or bad behaviour, but meta-ethics. What constitutes or makes behaviour good or bad? And the atheists fall into two groups today, which just makes it slightly more complicated for us. I'm overstating, I'm generalising, bear with me. Catch the central idea and then when you meet individuals, treat them as individuals. But there are the old atheists. They are the humanists, the moderns as opposed to the postmoderns, the, the enlightenment people the baby boomers, to put not too fine a point on it. They used rational debate in ethics. But the real argument they are always using is pragmatism, because that's the only rational debate that is available in ethics. 
And so with arguments with the baby boomers, you, you can never prove the point, nor can they prove their point. You can never actually finish and demonstrate that this is better than that because you can't really experiment properly on humans. <laughs> the arguments are nearly always futile unless they are completely obvious. I mean, you get this whole string of phrases like research shows us or recent studies have shown us, have demonstrated or <laughs> a lovely one they used to make fun of, university tests prove. They prove that anybody who believes university tests, never mind. But you see, go back to Professor Prince. For without God, there is no objective morality. Without human nature, there is no objective morality. And morality is not rational, it's just emotional. You see, here's the horror. Without God, there is no objective morality. And without objective morality, there is no justice. And so justice becomes nothing more than social engineering. Pragmatism is social engineering, looking for harm minimization. It's not matter right or wrong. We're just trying to minimize harm. We can't maximize good because we don't know what good is, but we minimize harm. Justice becomes social engineering. And of course, when justice is social engineering, then all government is the tyranny of power. For who is going to engineer society but government? And any form of government is then only a matter of tyranny, the tyranny of power. Monarchy is the tyranny of ancestral power. Dictatorship is the tyranny of one man's power. Democracy is the tyranny of the majority's power. Patriarchy is the tyranny of male power. Communism is the tyranny of the power of the collective and capitalism is the tyranny of the power of the wealthy. It's all the same. And disagreements are often just tribal affirmations, power grabs, and so politics. Progressives versus conservatives, left-wing versus right-wing, the Greens versus the industry, the Sydney Morning Herald versus the Australian. I try and read both of them. It's quite comical. You should try both of them, and then you'll save yourself a lot of time and money reading either of them, because they are talking to two completely different groups of people. They often don't even talk about the same subject, and when they do talk about the same subject, they talk about it at such contradictory points of view that you wouldn't have the faintest clue what the truth is. Trying to, they're trying to set themselves up as the standards of good and bad, as the agenda runners. There's the old atheists. But the new atheists, well, they're not humanists, but existentialists. Not moderns, but postmoderns. Not baby boomers, but millennials. For them, moral issues are no longer open to debate, discussion, or reason, but are appeals to emotional intuition. And that emotional intuition is expressed in in shibboleths, in memes. Uh, uh, morality and morals, moral statements are nothing more than kind of moral ejaculations. Love is love. Yes. <laughs> That's totally tautological and useless. But it won an election, it won a whole plebiscite. There is a glass ceiling. We are concerned for egalitarian values. 
there is we're against domestic violence you know all other violence is okay but domestic violence is bad i mean what what kind of logic is there caught in these phrases and of course it's not only in phrases it's in symbols ribbons there's a whole industry of colors on ribbons i, I thought i would just check up before I spoke to you about what ribbon colour reflected what. I only discover even on Wikipedia, there's about 80 or different coloured ribbons. I didn't know there were so many, but you get a little piece of ribbon here and I'm for white, I'm for pink, I'm for purple, I'm for rainbow, each of which says something about my folly and stupidity of spending money on ribbons. And then there's language games. For Orwell, George Orwell taught us, that you can change minds by changing language. And so you get these words like inclusive, which excludes people. Tolerate, which really means not tolerate, it now means accept. Acceptance and tolerance, two different words altogether, but they're no longer two, they're the same. Uh, the word interpret, instead of comprehend or read. So I interpret the newspapers. I was taught to read them, but now I've got to interpret them. And all this is exercised with censorious power, shaming, cancelling, legislating on anti-discrimination legislation. If you fail to agree, you are by definition immoral. If you enter into moral dialogue, well, you're failing to agree. And so you are immoral. Both see the problem, the old atheist and the new atheist, see the problems of the world all caught up in power. Now, at this point, Christians, what do we see it as? We should see it as sin. And if you've got the wrong diagnosis, you'll have the wrong prognosis, and you'll give the wrong prescription to solve the world's problems. <laughs> the role of women in our society and down the centuries has really been a role, of, a way of life, which has been terribly unjust, wicked and vicious, and appallingly have women been treated down the centuries. But the problem is not power or lack of it. The problem is sin. Change the power structure will not change the character of our relationships of the sexes. Dealing with sin will change it in any power structure. But because people see it as a power imbalance, then the problem is not in the human heart, not in my heart, <laughs> no, no, no. It's in the structures, it's in the system, it's in the power people. Why oh, you, Philip, you're a white old male. Yes, I am. I was once accused by a woman. She said to me, the trouble with you, Philip, is that you're a fat white male. I wasn't in old in those days. And I thought about it, well, I could go on a diet, that would solve the fat, and I could lie in the sun a lot, give me cancer, but hey, I wouldn't be quite so white. And I could, no, I wasn't going to change the male element. I am what I am. But today, well, no, I, can, I can consider myself to be a six-foot ape if I want to. Now, when you have the problem as power, then what you try and change is governments, police, courts, the system, the constitution. But the problems then are all politicised. And so the way of dealing with it is demonstrations, revolutions, overthrow, or the long march of white-anting the whole system through re-education programs. And righteousness then is found in the marginalised minority victim always. 
And of course, you never seek to solve the problem because if you solve the problem, you would lose your position as one of the marginalized minority victims. And so you develop what is known as identity politics. So the papers today are full. Both the Australian and the Sydney Morning Herald, both arguing the opposite point of view about the chosen person for the Democrats in America. She was chosen because she was the best person for the job. But the best person for the job had to be of coloured background and female. So she was chosen for racial and sexist grounds. But you're not allowed to say that because that's racist and sexist to say it. So, well, the papers had a field day disagreeing with each other about a cartoon as to whether it was racist or sexist for quoting Mr. Biden or misquoting him. So my fifth heading, the Christian in ethical evangelism. If you're going to use ethics as a way into the gospel, first thing you've got to know your audience. Am I talking to a baby boomer, old atheist, or a millennial new atheist? You've got to understand the nature of the game that you're engaged in, as I've just been trying to explain the nature of the game. For with one, I will argue pragmatically, with the other, I'll argue intuitively, emotionally. You see, with the millennials, You've got to agree with a central tenet. If you can, if you do agree with a central tenet, you've got to agree with that because to disagree with that means you don't get a hearing at all. But agreeing with a central tenet really doesn't take you anywhere very far into the gospel, just keeps you in relationship. So what you've got to do is recast the topic by accepting the moral view, but doing something more. Here are three things I'd suggest you do more. Speak of concrete examples. Now, Black Lives Matter. Yes, I think it's a terrible thing the way the alcohol industry is making money out of indigenous communities. It's just sheer wicked. I'm not agreeing or disagreeing in one sense with Black Lives Matter. I agree Black Lives do matter. I'm sharing that opinion but I'm moving to something concrete and specific rather than just the general vague emotional outburst. Second, give reasons for the intuition. Black lives matter because black people are not receiving the justice that they deserve. Now I've introduced concepts, justice, desert, not receiving. I'm no longer just making an emotional outpouring. I'm calling it back to a discussion of some logic. And then thirdly, bring God into the subject. Yeah, black lives matter and, matter and God is going to call us to judgment for our racism and ill treatment of other people or of black people, as you might want to put it. Which brings me then to the case study. It's point six in my outline. I don't know if I'm keeping up my numbers accurately or not, but that's point six about black lives matter. Black Lives Matter as a phrase is not a logical statement. It's an emotional judgment without logic, without content, and therefore it is atheistic, millennialist morality, an emotional response to the apparent, and I may say, very real injustices. It has to actually be connected to some apparent or real injustices or it won't work. 
but on this occasion, it is, and it does work. It's, it's a political statement, though, for it's seeking to redress power imbalance. But that's not how we're going to get people to the gospel, because redressing power imbalance is not going to change the human heart. It's just going to put different people in power than the ones who are in power now. And the ones that you put in power will be just as sinful as the ones that you just emptied out of power. Revolutions have never changed human nature. See, behind it is a range of issues that you, in one sense, need to understand. <laughs> There's a political party organisation called Black Lives Matter, which existed before the present outburst on this subject, waiting for the moment to happen, and it has a much wider agenda than just being concerned about African-Americans. There's also the whole long-term Marxist principle of useful fools that they often use and did use through the 60s and 70s and 80s, 50s, as they tried to invade Western society and, and liberal societies. They used what they called useful fools to advance their cause. And we need to be careful to make sure we're not just being used by people. Furthermore, there is a desire amongst people to advance a much wider cause and agenda of progressivism, if you want to call it that. On the other hand, there are conspiracy theories like you wouldn't believe about each of these movements and each of these demonstrations, that it's all been concocted by Marxists. And you need to actually live long, think deeply, not get yourself caught up by either group, left or right, as being used as useful fools for them to promote their program. But what about evangelism with people in this subject? Well, I want to suggest to you, don't debate the logic of Black Lives Matter, except with baby boomers. But the people who will advocate Black Lives Matter, by and large, are not the baby boomers, but their children or grandchildren, the millennials. Trying to debate with them the logic of the matter is actually a lost cause. See, there was a politician in Tasmania, if I remember correctly, who said, all lives matter, including black lives. She didn't understand. What she was saying in the language of the millennial atheistic progressivist mindset, what she was saying was black lives don't matter. She was using logic to debate emotions. Doesn't work. In fact, she was forced to withdraw and, and apologize for not identifying black lives matter. Of course, you can argue, you see, the whole thing is, is dreadful. It's an appropriation of African-American issues to have it here in Australia. <laughs> because what their issue is with ex-slaves, Africans, it's not our issue. Our issue, of course, is Indigenous people. What we should be saying is First Nation lives matter. Because that's the issue we're doing. And the way the... the, the, way the the demonstration is being expressed is also Americanism, uh, taking the knee. <laughs> it goes a long way back into American culture. It's got almost nothing to do with Australian culture. Or changing the name of cheese from coon cheese 
Well, in America, coon is a, a derogatory term, which if it has become a derogatory term in Australia, it's only because we've adopted too many Americanisms. It wasn't previously uh, an American. I won't go into it more than that. I'm just assuring you it is the case. On the other hand, when I was a child, we used to have money boxes called black sambos and we used to have nigger boy boot polish. I'm very glad that those, those names have been changed. I'm not necessarily saying we shouldn't change coon cheese. I'm just saying understand where these terms are coming from and how much we are really being brought into an argument that is not our argument. Our argument really should be about Indigenous Australians and the terrible abuse that they have suffered over the last 200 plus years at the hands of white settlement. Brilliant and wonderful as white settlement has been, it has come at the cost of another whole human grouping. So seventhly, the logic of gospel strategy is accept the sentiment provided that you do. <laughs> don't pretend you think Black Lives Matter if you don't think that. They, they, hypocrisy will always be seen for what it is. But accept the sentiment. I think Indigenous Australians are being treated appallingly. I don't have any trouble saying Black Lives Matter. I think it is, a, it is terrible when you see the statistics of the numbers of Australian Indigenous people, especially young men, incarcerated for their crimes. There has to be something wrong with our system when they are so disproportionately represented there. But accepting the sentiments only the beginning, push for a concrete example that we need to work on. For just expressing emotions gets nowhere, just stirs up divisions, controversies, it gets nowhere. So I always go for fetal alcohol syndrome because it is dreadful and it is a major cause for teenage Aborigines to be incarcerated in prison is because of fetal alcohol syndrome. And I think we as a society need to address this particular issue as one, only one, as one critical issue in the whole subject of why it is that our Indigenous peoples are so overwhelmingly represented in our, in our prisons. Rather than just talk about it in generalities, push for a concrete example. Then, thirdly, bring in a moral logic. If we're going to persuade Australia, we have to work out what is evil and why it's evil. See, we've moved now from normative ethics to metaethics. What makes right right and what makes wrong wrong? We've got to do better than just saying it doesn't feel right. Why is it wrong? Why is it right? How can we persuade people to this? And in that process, introduce the God language. For God is going to call us to judgment for our ill treatment of others. And I'd say, if it's true, and it is in my context anyway, at our church, we're praying for better government response to the problems. Do you want to join us in praying for this? Introduce God into the moral issue. For once you've introduced God into this issue, then you can move further into what we know about God. For what we seek is 
three R's, repentance, redemption, regeneration. And we seek those for ourselves, our part in wrongdoing, as well as for our friends and through them, our society. For Christianity works from the bottom up, not the top down. Change the government, you change nothing. Haven't you learnt that yet? You change government, you really don't change much at all. Not really. But change the people and their hearts and you will change much more than the government. You'll change society. But that comes about by the gospel recognition of my sinfulness, my need for repentance, the redemption that comes from God's death of his son on our behalf and his declaration not of cancel, but of forgiveness and of my regeneration by the Holy Spirit to live differently. You see, I can move to the gospel once I've got people talking about God and prayer. And I can move to God and prayer once I'm talking about moral logic. But I need to acknowledge the intuitive immorality that they so strongly feel. 